Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, Margaret Verbal, who NPR has called an immensely gifted writer, and her new novel, Stealing. As a writer and successful author, Margaret Verbal has other novels to be proud of and praise to go along with her work. Her first novel, Maud's Line, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2016. Her second novel, Cherokee America, established, uh, published in 2019, was named by the New York Times as one of the 100 Notable Books of the Year and won the Spur Award for Best Traditional Western. Cherokee America is a, uh, a prequel to Maud's Line, and Margaret, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma, set both novels on and around her family's Indian allotment land near Fort Gibson, Oklahoma. Margaret's third novel, released in October of 2021, is set in 1926 in the old Glendale Park Zoo in Nashville, Tennessee. It was a pick by Book List as one of the 10 best adult novels of the year. Its heroine, Two Feathers, is a Wild West show performer on loan from the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch in Oklahoma. So we're going to review those novels before we start talking about Stealing, her new novel. And Margaret, I just want to say thanks very much for uh, gracing our podcast microphones once again. It's wonderful to have you back. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's good to see you again. I think that the interesting question to begin with is how did the, the research and the the continuing discovery, uh, the writing of your previous novels influence stealing. And I will say this, if people don't know, they will find out by just reading, I think, uh, maybe your uh, press uh, clipping or uh, maybe it's in the acknowledgments that stealing was written in 2006 and 2007. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Um you know, novels are not necessarily published in the order in which you write them. And I wrote Cherokee America first, then I wrote Stealing, then I wrote Maud's Line, then I wrote When Two Feathers uh, Fell from the Sky. So Stealing is not necessarily based on the others or uh, as, uh, and as a writer, how does that happen? What what if you wrote stealing and 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 put it on the shelf or it was in manuscript form or you had people reading it or you set it off uh, for someone uh the, the the publisher to take a look at it was it their best guess that you better try it again or that you you might write a a, a different story before we send this one out in the world well that's um I think you're asking me about the history of this book, and um, uh, it's this. 
I wrote Cherokee America first. I had a terrible time getting it published. It was turned down by something like 92 different agents and publishers. And I worked for years on trying to get it published. While I was trying to get it published, I wrote Stealing. And I decided that I needed to find out if my writing was any good because I kept getting turned down. So I, I went up to a writer's workshop up in Connecticut and a very established writer, Roxanne Robinson, read Stealing and or read the first 100 pages of it and she loved it. And she immediately started trying to get me an agent. Now it's harder to get a good agent than it is to get a book published. That's the, it's a huge hurdle. And I started, so I started sell, sending Stealing out as well as Cherokee America. But I realized real early in Stealing that the people that I was sending it to did not realize that I was writing about a real problem. They did not know anything about these boarding schools or Indian children being sent to them. They just didn't know. And I knew that they didn't know. And I thought, I know, already know this is a good book because it's already been validated. I'm just going to set it aside and keep trying to write. So I went to another writer's workshop and had another established writer look at Cherokee America. And she said, this is a very publishable book. What's wrong? And I said, I think there's not a market for Indians. And she said, well, there's a very small market for Indians, but what you really need to do, and New York wants for a first novel, they want a book about a single character to follow that character all the way through the book, which of course Cherokee America doesn't do because it's written like a book, like an Indian would write it about a whole group of people. That's the whole point. And she said, and they wanted about a hundred, they want about a hundred thousand words for, for a, a first novel. So I went home and wrote Maud's line because stealing is not a hundred thousand words and I did not want to pad it. So I just wrote another book with a single heroine and it, it sold instantly. That's a fascinating story. It, it the other day, um, last week, in the presence of um, of two of the um, faculty members at uh, Spalding University's uh, uh, Naslin Mann uh, Writing uh, School at Spalding University, our underwriter, and we'll get to that. Uh, spot a little bit later in the podcast. Everyone knows that they're our underwriter and have been for several years, and, and we appreciate them so much for participating uh, with us at Kentucky Humanities. But we were with someone who did not know uh, the Spalding process, uh, the graduate school process, 
And so we were all three uh, explaining this. Uh, you went to uh, the uh, writing workshop at, at Wesley, was it, in, in, in Connecticut? Wesleyan College in Connecticut. And then I went to the second one, I went to Kenyon. And uh, that's what, uh, if there's a, a debate out there in, in writer's land about the, uh, the reason to go to a writer's workshop, there have been all sorts of ups and downs and a pro and con about uh, there are too many graduate schools uh, of writing and um, people just need to sit down and put a pen to paper, that sort of thing, when we did use a pen. Uh, but, but your story uh, is fascinating in that the, the sequence in which you wrote, uh, the rejections that you received, uh, going back uh, to continue. I mean, I, I think so many people, and, and probably it's so true that writers who've been rejected that many times probably put it on the shelf and, and went back to whatever they were doing before. I mean, you had a professional life at the same time. You had to kind of squeeze in your writing, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did have to squeeze in my writing. But then you decided to do it full time. Well, I, uh, I actually still work my other job too. Uh, I, will, I will go to Ohio in April and, and do that. And I do that several times a year, not to Ohio, but California or Texas or Colorado. Um, we don't want to get off on that on this, but um, yeah, I have a double life. Tell, um, and, and as we, uh, I hinted, uh, we're going to talk about these other um, uh, novels. Just very briefly, remind people, uh, as you have, um, uh, about Cherokee America. And that, that was the, the Pulitzer Prize uh, finalist. No, Maud's, Maud's Line was. Maud's Line was, excuse me. But, but uh, Cherokee, excuse me, yes, you're exactly right. But how different, um, but Cherokee America, uh, tell us a little bit about that as we, as we lead into the others and, and then, then Maud's Line. But go on and talk about Cherokee America just briefly. Well, I was, I became interested in Cherokee America because I came, uh, I ran across the uh, gravestone of Cherokee America Rogers in the, uh, what used to be the old Cherokee National Cemetery, which my grandfather was buried in. And I've spent an awful lot of time in that cemetery. And um, so I ran across that gravestone, and I was in my early 20s at the time, and um, I came home uh, to my grandmother's house, uh, newly widowed, she was newly widowed at the time, and I came home and, um, you know, we sat down to dinner, and um, I told her, she knew I'd gone to visit uh, my grandfather's grave, and I, you know, I told her I had seen this just wonderful gravestone, this one with Cherokee America Rogers, and Grandma laughed, and she said, you found Aunt Check, and, um, she told me the story of how her father, uh, my grandmother's father, my great-grandfather, and his brother had come as orphans uh, of the Civil War to Indian Territory. And that Mrs. Rogers, Aunt Jack, had taken them in and given them work and a life, really, because they, they didn't have anything. 
And um, I thought at the time that uh, Mrs. Rogers, who is Mrs. Singer in the book, um, was uh, blood kin to us because the Rogers allotment was next to our allotments. And uh, we are uh, the Rogers family that produce, for instance, Will Rogers and some other Hmm. well-known Rogers are are part of our family. So, you know, they they tried, for the most part, to put those allotments, families together. So, you know, I assumed that Mrs. Rogers was blood kin to me. But I found out through years and years of research that, no, that wasn't true, Uh, that she acquired that name from a white man she married, and he was from Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, but I did a lot of uh, research trying to solve that mystery. And out of that came Cherokee America. Out of that came Cherokee America. And then uh, talk to us about Maud's line, uh, the the finalist, um, because that also w- is steeped in a, a lot of research and uh, a different time period. Um, and was that equally... Um, uh, a, a leap of faith into something that you wanted to, to know more about? No, actually it wasn't. And actually I didn't have to do much research to, to uh, write Maud's line. I read some books. You know, Maud's line is set in 1928. And 1929, of course, is a famous year uh, because the stock market crashed and the Depression began. But 1927 is also a famous year. Lindbergh flew the ocean in 1927. Babe Ruth was just hot as a firecracker. There was a huge flood that flooded the middle of the entire continent. And so there have been several books written on 1927. So I knew that I wanted to set that book in the late 20s. And I began reading then books on 1927 just to get a feel for 1927. Now, the reason I wanted to set that book in the late 20s was because I had come back from Kenyon where I had been given the advice that I've got to write a book about a single character. Now, that is so un-Indian. I can't even tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just not the way Native people think about themselves, it's not the structure of the society, it's just so white. Mm. So I had to think about when could I legitimately set a book about Cherokees in a time frame that would make it make sense to really write about just one person. And that would be after the allotments and really at the low point in Cherokee history. See, the, the, the United States government, their plan was to get rid of these allotment Indians. As soon as the ones that were enrolled were dead, there would be no more Cherokees. It was, you know, death by paper. Okay. So, so in, in the late 1920s, 1930s, that time period, these people were trying desperately to adjust 
to a world in which there would be no more Indians or no more Cherokees. And so it was a low point, and I felt like that I could legitimately write about um, a person who was trying to gain their individuality, which is not, you know, really a native thing, um, by setting it in that time period. And I, I knew about that because my mother's entire generation, that was their problem. They could not be Indians because they couldn't be enrolled. And they had to adjust a whole way of life. Now, I didn't have to research that. I knew that because I knew my mother and her brothers, and, and I knew lots of her first cousins. So I knew the struggles they had, so I didn't have to research that at all. Hmm. And then um, the... You were, uh, I don't know if you were born and raised, but you spent a lot of time in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and that is uh, completely different from the other setting uh, that you had uh, in um, Two Feathers and creating this, uh, I would imagine you created this character, although there were plenty of them on the circuit at the time, and maybe you'd seen somebody uh, jump off of a platform on a horse. I, I have never seen anybody jump off a platform on a horse, and I hope never to do that, but um, I was aware, I, I did have to research the Wild West shows, and I did have to research, I was raised on the, uh, the grounds of the Glendale Park Zoo, and was fascinated by it uh, as a child. And um, anybody that was raised in those neighborhoods around that zoo, we were all, we all knew it had been there and that park had been there. And um, so I have always wanted to write uh, about that park and about that zoo. And my major problem was how can I get an Indian over there to Nashville? Because <laughs> you know, they ran, they ran the Indians out of Nashville. And I also wanted to write about that running of those Indians out of Nashville because that had always stuck in my throat um, because when I first read about it uh, in the fourth grade, um, the, the, the Indians were you know, portrayed as vicious savages who were just for no reason at all were just attacking uh, these these poor white people who were just trying to raise their corn and, you know, plow their fields and shoot their bears. And, um, of course, I just, it, that just incensed me, incensed me as a child, and I never got over it. And um, so I wanted to write about all of that, but I had to, I had to find a way to get a, a, a Cherokee back into Nashville and the Wild West shows uh, entertainer is the best way to do that. Fascinating uh, <laughs> the way your imagination uh, allowed you to do that <laughs> and brought the, her to uh, Nashville. And then Stealing, uh, which um, is out now uh, or soon will be and, and everyone will, will understand its theme and um, let me ask you to talk a little bit about it, but in, in doing so, because you've already mentioned uh, the horrific uh, nature of the Indian boarding schools that really, quite honestly, 
speaking for myself and maybe a few others, and you and I have talked about this before, I don't know if we realized um, how prolific they were and, and what they were doing. Uh, they've gotten a lot of publicity from Canada all the way down to the United States and, uh, and, and, and possibly maybe even in, in Kentucky. So uh, talk about that in, in a way that is, does that Indian boarding school in Stealing become a character? Well, I haven't thought about the boarding school itself as a character. Uh, that's a good question. I'll have to think about that after this interview because uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but uh, I uh, certainly there are a lot of those boarding schools. And the ones that have gotten the attention in Canada and, I, and the ones that will get attention, I think, here mostly in the United States were government-run. Government I mean, th this was part, this was part of, uh, you know, a, a grand design in order to, like, um, get rid of Indianness. You know, they want to get rid of the Indian and save the child. Um, and strip them of everything that made them native. And, but it didn't go on just in, in government boarding schools. Uh, this went on in Christian boarding schools too. And the Cherokees, the Cherokees ran into the boarding school problem a lot earlier than a lot of the Western Indians did. Um, the uh, Moravians came uh, into Georgia uh, and set up a boarding school in 1804 and uh, on the plantation of James Van. And the Cherokees realized early on that they had to, they had to teach their children to read and write English so that they'd have a chance against people who were, you know, shoving papers at them and telling them to sign them. And of course, you know, they were bright people. They knew that children could pick up foreign languages better than adults could. So they, they, wanted, they wanted these kids to, to uh, go to boarding school. But of course, the missionaries, were not really particularly that interested in teaching, reading, and writing. They wanted to convert them to Christianity. So if you read, like if you read the the diaries of these missionaries, which I have, uh, you see that tension. The the missionaries are always trying to de-Indianize these kids, and the parents are always trying to are always saying, teach them to read and write. And there was a lot of, like, taking them out of school and putting them in school. Now, I'm talking about the early 1800s. But what I'm trying to say is that the Cherokees had a little bit different experience with these boarding schools than some other Indians did. But I, I, I always knew, I mean, I cannot remember not knowing that that people wanted to take Indian children away from their families. I mean, I, I just, I mean, you just know that if you are raised 
in a native family, you know that there is always that danger. And in our particular tribe, that danger was generally from good, upstanding Christians. Yet you set the the novel, Stealing, your new novel, in, in a in a later time period. Um, That's right, because it, it, it I mean, it, this was still true, Bill. This was still true up until like the 1970s. This is not something that like, you know, the Cherokees had early experiences with it, but it just, I mean, this this is something that went on for, for decades and centuries, really. Hmm. And, uh, but, but it is a part of, I mean, I knew when I sent that book out that by the responses I got to it when I first tried to get it published, which was, well, we love the writing. But they didn't understand I was writing about something that was a real problem. Hmm. Um, tell me about um, the. Uh, tell me about the 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 advice you got uh, from uh, obviously uh, a non Cherokee, a non Indian, uh, which which you you took that advice of, of writing a, a, about a singular mm-hmm. character. Kit is is your protagonist in in this, and there are other uh, uh, characters that that you really. Uh, colorfully uh, write about, but uh, tell us about her and and how she is uh, there from page one all the way through. Well, this is written from a first-person point of view, and it is the uh, only novel, published novel, that I've written from the uh, first-person point of view. And that voice uh, came to me it really sort of came to me out of the sky, uh, if you want to know the truth. Um, sometimes when you, when you all, all novels have a voice. Um, they're not necessarily the, they're not the voice of the main character unless you're writing in first person. And a lot of times you have to write a good while to develop that voice in a particular, maybe two or three drafts to get a voice fully developed, but Kit's voice came to me in the first paragraph. By the time Kit sees the rooster, which is, I believe, in the first paragraph of the book, mm-hmm. could be in the second paragraph, I hadn't read this book in No, it's pretty close. <laughs> well, it's, it's on pretty, page one. Is I know it that on page, sure. It's on page one. Okay, yeah, I can't remember sure. what paragraph it's in, mm-hmm. but by the time she sees that rooster, that voice is absolutely solid in my head. And to tell you the truth, this was an extraordinarily easy book to write. I wrote it in a matter of months, and I was flying back and forth to the United Kingdom working at the time. So if I hadn't been working for like three weeks at a time uh, and then flying back to the United States, so if I hadn't been doing that, I mean, I really could have written it even much faster. Um, What... Why do you like Kit as the um, as your main character? What what did you see in her? What did you? How did you write her that makes her appealing to the reader? Well, I'm not so sure that I so much as wrote Kit as that Kit wrote me. Uh, I was stuck with that voice from the moment that it came into my head, which was I think the first paragraph. 
so it wasn't like I was making a lot of decisions. I mean, the, the voice was there, uh, just like this microphone is here. And it was not a decision-making process. Now, I made some decisions about how I structured the novel, but uh, I didn't make decisions about the voice. The voice was there and the character was there. What other decisions did you make about the structure? Did you, um, had you already imagined that their mother would, would not be there, that uh, there would be some problems in the family, uh, that there would be some, uh, all novels have to No, have... Uh, I didn't. I didn't. Now, this, this is going to sound odd, but this is how I write. I don't know ahead of time what's going to happen to the character. I don't say ahead of time, well, I'm going to have a character and this is going to happen to him. Now, I know some people write like that, uh, but I don't. And so I didn't know what was going to happen to that character. But as I did, as it developed, I decided that I needed to sort of have a back and forth kind of structure in order to reveal some of the stuff that I wanted to reveal. But you did know that you wanted to write about the, about the schools. I mean, that was going to be a, some, somewhere in... I did not know that I was going to be writing about the schools. Oh, really? You did not? No, I did not. Now, mm. I had always known these children yeah. were in danger of being mm -hmm. taken yeah. away from their families. Yeah. I mean, I had known that since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's not like anybody sat down and said that to me. It's just you can't, you can't be raised around Indians and not know that. So I always knew that. And so that, of course, would be an ever-present ever danger for a child like that. Like, you know, like a snake in the grass would be an ever-present danger for a child like that. Well, there was um, reference to snakes in the grass. Yeah, well, there uh, was snakes in the, the grass stick. out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah in Oklahoma. Maud, Maud uses that same, that same yeah, exactly, techniques exactly. against those snakes. I've been she fighting did. those snakes all my life. <laughs> Uh, I'm talking with Margaret Verbal. Her new uh, novel, Stealing, uh, is out. Um, and we're going to have more with uh, Margaret and some other questions about uh, stealing and uh, other interesting uh, uh, facts about uh, Native Americans in this country today. Uh, but first, we're going to hear from, as I referenced earlier in the podcast, our wonderful friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Margaret, uh, I have to give full uh, credit to your uh, 
publicist and agent and public relations, uh, uh, I, I would have never come up with these. Uh, th- there are three questions that they they sent along. In oh, the, did they? Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah All yeah, right. They, Good. They, I, they, they sure did. Let's hear them. And uh, but but <laughs> one is is one that uh, now I would have asked about uh, because you and I were on. Uh, I don't know where we. Uh, Reveal that we were on a treadmill somewhere together uh, talking about... Well, not uh, the same in, treadmill. In, no, no, that's right. Not the same <laughs> treadmill, but talking about Indian boarding schools, which is a, a topic that is uh, recently not only in the news, but uh, uh, people that are interested. I've had uh, another uh, an acquaintance uh, who's uh, looking into doing some research on, on boarding schools in Kentucky and that sort of thing. So, But that's beside the point. I, I would have probably gotten to that on my own, but I would not have gotten to uh, the um, interest in the Indian Child Welfare Act. And the question or the statement was the fate of the Indian Child Welfare Act federal law aimed at preventing Native uh, children from being separated from their extended families uh, and their uh, tribes uh, currently is being reviewed by the Supreme Court the ruling could have far-reaching implications that uh, undermine tribal uh, 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 livelihood, I guess, or living living together. The uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, what, what what do you what can you enlighten us about that? Well, this became what we've been talking about about taking these kids out of um, their homes and away from their families. Uh, was such a problem that eventually somebody intervened. I think this was in the 1970s. I should I should be able to tell you the exact date, and I can hardly tell you the exact date of anything. But but there was finally an act passed that said, no, you can't do that. No, it's just outrageous to do that. And now it's in front of the Supreme Court again. Being tested. Being tested, just who, like who Roe v. Wade was tested. I didn't, uh, I should have looked this up. Uh, who, who, do you know the details of who uh, originally brought the suit and, and how it went up through a state court uh, and, and now at the Supreme Court? Well, the uh, adoptive families have done this. Mm. Uh, and I think there's more than one adoptive family involved in it. Uh, but the details of it don't really matter. What really matters is that this law is not overturned. Hmm. And I don't know if it will be or not. I, I personally, at this moment, do not have a lot of faith in the Supreme Court. And uh, I think that, that one of the problems with this particular case, and I hope I'm wrong, um, in terms of my fears about it. But one of the problems is that, that most of these justices, other than, you know, their, their leanings that I don't approve of in, in other respects, they don't really, there's, there's nobody besides Neil Gorsuch on the court that knows anything about Indians. They don't have, they don't have background. Uh, that includes anything Native American. They're East Coast people. Mm. And, you know, they killed all the Indians over on the East Coast, or most of them, centuries ago. Mm. 
And so there's not a real appreciation of, of what this problem is. And um, so, you know, I, I'm distressed about it. I, I don't know, you know, I can't read the minds of the Supreme Court, um, but it, it's a real threat to, to Native Americans everywhere. It's almost um, an elementary uh, question uh, if people know your work uh, and have read it uh, like I have, but certainly being Native American has influenced your writing uh, hands down. Uh, but the question is, uh, for those who haven't read, how much has it been an influence in your life, in your life of writing? Um, being a, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation? Well, I, I would say that it's, uh, well, obviously it has influenced me a great deal because I've got four books out with, with Cher Cherokee heroines. But, but here's the deal, Bill. Um, I was raised in a family where we knew that they were being eradicated. I knew that from the time I was a kid, that the plan was to eradicate these people as a people. And it was heartbreaking to me. It was so distressing to me because I knew that they would be forgotten in American history and in the American consciousness. And I made a pact with myself as a teenager that if I could do anything at all to prevent that, I would do it. Now my ta talent is in writing, but I am not the only Cherokee of my generation to devote themselves to that. You see there are people all over the Cherokee Nation of my generation who decided we are not going to let this happen. And some of them are other kinds of artists, some of them are historians, some of them are just people who, who are trying to keep the old traditions alive uh, by playing the games. Uh, you know, and the revitalization of the Cherokee language, I can't tell you how many millions of dollars the Cherokee Nation is pouring in to saving this language. So there's a, I think that, that my response, frankly, was a response of an awful lot of kids in my generation who saw that their parents and their grandparents were going to be their entire memories were going to be wiped out of American history, and they were just not going to stand it. In your lifetime and today, have you seen progress? Oh, yes. I mean, the Cherokee Nation is absolutely vital and alive. It has, you know, it, it is, I can't even tell you the difference uh, between now and 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and when I was a child, of course, you know, they were, they appointed, the, the, the United States government appointed the chief 
uh, for a while uh, in the Cherokee Nation, but whenever they needed a ceremonial chief, they'd appoint a chief for a day. We couldn't even have a chief. Hmm. That's how that's how deeply the eradication went. We couldn't have any government. They destroyed our courts. We couldn't even have a chief. And then slowly we were able to to just claw some of that back and 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 um, get a chief that was appointed. Bill Keeler was the first one that was appointed for any length of time. He was also president of Phillips Petroleum, which didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And he'd been raised in a, a family that spoke mm-hmm. Cherokee as first language. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, people of his generation started trying to claw their way back into having an actual an actual uh, tribe. Mm-hmm. Do you go back to Oklahoma often? I do. I go, I've been twice in the last six months. And, and is there a, um, when you speak of an allotment, what, what is that? Allotment is a uh, section of land. And it is, for adults, uh, uh, when it was originally allotted, uh, it was 640 acres. And I don't know if you've ever been down section line, but if you go down section lines, there there's 640 acres hmm. in there. And for, uh, if you go back to like 1907, which is basically mm-hmm. the, the year the allotments were done or finished, uh, the, if you were an adult, if you were a Cherokee adult at that time, you got 640 acres. If you were a child, you got less. And my grandmother and all of her brothers and sisters were children at the time. So they got, they got allotments, and their mother got an allotment, and um, they, um, they uh, were all, for the most part, huddled down together in a particular section Mm -hmm. of the Arkansas River Bottoms. Mm. Which is probably pretty good land. It was wonderful land. And it is today. My cousins are farming it. Well, I was going to say, so they farm it, uh, raise cattle or or, or crops or uh, whatever they do on private land. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Corn and soybeans and, and wheat. Yeah. Well, it's a... It's a fascinating life story for you that uh, we appreciate you sharing with us. Uh, you've done that through your novels and through your, your testimony, if you will. Uh, I think there's so much more for white folks uh, to learn uh, and to also uh, be, um, and to act on and to, 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 to educate themselves to learn more about this. And as you said, uh, there's going to be more to come. I mean, obviously, we've got a Supreme Court uh, ruling to, to be held, and and I would imagine more public um, conversation about about all of this. And in the meantime, you keep writing. <laughs> I do keep writing. Margaret Verbal, um, uh, probably one of, uh, if, if not, um, well, I, I hesitate to say... Uh, one of Lexington's, uh, uh, if not Kentucky's best known, uh, living novelist uh, uh, who can still go to uh, Kroger uh, or the YMCA <laughs> and sneak in without uh, being uh, hounded by autograph seekers, right? 
<laughs> yes, uh, and I hope to keep that up. Yes, well, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.